Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. The difficulty in getting on the property ladder is laid stark. A new report says only a quarter of first-time buyers were aged 30 or under. Neffet sets out its recommendations to curb the latest spread of COVID. And we'll take a look back at the biggest stories of the week, including the ticket frenzy this morning for a certain US country music star. Absolutely thrilled to be getting the Garth tickets, um, especially after 2014. And the heartache of that and the heartbreak was was devastating. We want to know what you think about these stories. You can get in touch on Twitter on our hashtag TonightVMTV. breaking news. In the last couple of hours, we've heard from Neffet after its latest meeting. Uh, public health officials are advising the wearing of masks from third class up and by nine-year-olds in settings currently required of adults. They're also proposing that primary age children stop attending extracurricular indoor gatherings. That means indoor play dates, nativities, communions for a period of two weeks. Uh, meanwhile, Britain is bringing in new travel restrictions for six African countries over a new COVID variant, which the UK government says may be more transmissible than the Delta strain. World health officials are meeting tomorrow to assess that new variant, and we will have much more on this later on in the programme. Now, first to the housing crisis and the stark realisation of how difficult it is for the younger generation to get on the property ladder. A new report shows that first-time buyers are getting older, with around a quarter under the age of 30. In 2004, that number was double that. But that wasn't the only news perspective first-time buyers heard today. The central bank has given the green light for banks to take part in the government's shared equity scheme. Well, joining me tonight has been a fall Senator Timmy Dooley, Independent TD Verona Murphy and Rory Hearn, Assistant Professor of Social Policy at Maynooth University. You're all very welcome along to the programme tonight. Um, I want to come to you first, Rory, on this survey showing a huge drop-off in the number of people under the age of 30 becoming first-time buyers. Um, what do you think that says about the housing market? Because I think 27% were under the age of 30 drawing down those mortgages um, and this year compared to 2004 when that age group accounted for 60% of those mortgages. Yeah, it, it just shows um, the extent to which we have an affordability crisis in our housing system. But this locked out generation um, and, you know, have been referred to as generation rent and essentially stuck renting 
um, into their 30s, many into their 40s, um, and also locked at home as well, living in parents' home. We have hundreds of thousands of people across this country who the idea of buying their own home or even getting an affordable, secure rental home is simply being pushed beyond them as a possibility. And I'm deeply concerned when we look at these, these figures that are out today, uh, we consider the stories that we're hearing of people talking about emigrating, leaving this country, um, people really despairing. And we have to look at, you know, how did we get into this point? How did we get to this point, um, which is such a radical change from where we were 20 years ago? And of course, the reason is we've had 20 years of housing policy that has turned by successive governments, that has turned housing into a commodity, into an investment asset, rather than been treated as a home. And this is a really important point. The state really has withdrew from building housing, from the supply of housing, handed it over to the market, to developers, increasingly investors, and now we have this major housing shortage of affordable homes. Is it also a rental issue as well? Because arguably, you know, people under 30 buying a home, 60% of them, that's quite a high number. It might be considered quite a high number, maybe by European standards back in 2004, that young people were buying quite young in life mm. um, rather than, than later in life. There, there, there's some factors, according to this survey, that's come out by the Banking and Payments Federation that they're saying people are deciding they want to settle down later in life and buy a home at an older age as well. And they're, getting old, uh, they're older getting married and having children and that's all leading to that effect as well that people are simply older buying a home as a result. Yeah, there are demographic factors, absolutely. There's cultural changes that mean, you know, people are more interested in renting and people are putting off having families later. But we know, and I'm contacted by people, you know, every other day about the crisis who are telling me, and, and the surveys show of renters, the majority of renters don't want to be renting the private rental sector. It is insecure. They have little security of tenure. We are hearing this year potentially two and a half thousand renters being evicted, given notice to quits. The rental sector is not secure, so it's not about some lifestyle choice. People are renting in the private sector in this country. There is a real problem and that has to be addressed. And I think it does come back to, as I said, this policy where the state has handed, governments have handed the delivery of housing over to the private market. Um. Timmy Dooley, I mean, this won't surprise many people who may be sitting at home with their parents or in private rented accommodation that they're struggling to actually afford every month when they see the fact that they won't be able to buy a home anytime soon. Yeah, I mean, we all recognise there's a housing crisis. There's a very significant shortage of housing. And really, the only way to resolve that is increased supply. Now, you can take measures in the interim to try and assist those that are in, at particular pressure points, and the government is doing that. But the plan that was launched recently by Minister Dara O'Brien, the Minister for Housing, uh, the Housing for All programme, sets out a very ambitious target to build 300,000 houses in the next 10 years. 90,000 of those will be social houses. So it's, a, it, it's, a, it's speaking exactly to Rory's point. It's the state getting back into the frame building houses, uh, uh, you know, social houses, which will help to address one aspect uh, of the housing crisis. It's not really going to help people today, though, is it? N no, it isn't, because, quite frankly, there aren't enough homes in the state for the population that's there right why now. Is which that? is Why Well, you can go back over successive governments and you can look at the policies and you can reach a point and, and, and do all the analysis of it. I, to be honest with you, I'm more interested in what do you do to get beyond that? What do we do now? And I think the plan that's in place 
is really the answer because it looks at affordability for those that are on lower incomes. Um, it looks at, at cost affordable rental for people who, as you've identified in the demographics, don't want to own a home now and have chosen and would want to choose to rent for a while and settle down at a later stage and maybe have a family. But we're so you're, you're the looking cost at cost of build to rent, and there are new blocks going up. They're not cheap. They're really expensive for these one beds that I think the Thornister was referring well, it, to yeah. today that people should be looking at. There is an affordability like it, issue. And, but, there's but, a huge affordability but, issue. But let's recognise... it going to come down anytime soon? There's, there's, the reality is there's a cost to building a piece of property uh, and we know the inputs are going up and we, we know that the, the, the cost of construction is going up. The cost of materials is going up. Uh, so, so therefore society will have to respond to that in terms of uh, wages, etc. So, so, but, but the reality is where, where you currently have people who, based on their, their income, are unable to get a mortgage for a certain level. And there's a gap between that and the cost of the property. And the state are stepping in with an affordable right. scheme to address that. And the shared equity scheme is one such measure, an interim yep. measure that will help well, that. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about that uh, in a moment. Just on, you know, the scheme and the plans. And actually, if we are to bring in that shared equity scheme that's been given the green light by the central bank today. So that's in essence that for people who can't afford in this current housing market to buy, that the state is going to pony up and help them to, to get that money they need. Do you think that's the solution? Is it the right thing to be doing now? Well, supply is still an issue. And I think that is for a short period of time because we do know that it's virtually impossible with the rents that are being paid for anybody to save a deposit. So I think that's where that scheme will help, but it does not do anything for supply. And where I absolutely agree with Rory is in relation to planning policy. But we may disagree on the basis that it's just been handed over to developers. Like There's a huge issue with planning policy on the basis that planners will always say viability is not a consideration for them. It is, however, a consideration for developers. And whilst you might be able to purchase a one-bedroom department in Dublin and it's feasible. It's not in the country. You wouldn't get a mortgage for a one or two bed in the country. And the cost of building is now to the extent of where it is so expensive to build apartments, developers just aren't building them. They will build what people want. People in the country do not want apartments. Dublin, yes. So we have an issue where it's not a one-size-fits-all, but that's where the planning policy is at. Right, what would you say to that, Rory, that the... the the planning policy raises problems in terms of, I don't know, offering a solution here and helping people get the home that they want and that's right for them. Well, I think there are issues with planning. There's no doubt about that and, and how the planning system works and we're seeing um, issues that, that need to be worked on that. But I would make the point that the problem is an over-reliance on the private developers to, to provide housing. And for example, there's many things the government could be doing, the state could be doing now. Um, for example, the ESRI, and I've you know, said this before, said we can borrow up to four billion additionally. Why aren't we setting up a public home building company to build the homes, given the costs are there, given we need construction workers, we have huge amounts of public land across this country. The O'Coolon Housing Cooperative is building housing, affordable homes. It says it could expand what it is doing. Housing associations yeah. could be building more. There is a, in many ways, the state is actually playing a role of creating and adding to the artificial scarcity by not using all the resources it has by building affordable homes. Uh, I, I want to ask you about the shared equity scheme that was was given the green light. Now, the government, have said, they've set £75 million aside in the budget for this and they think that it's a great um, short-term solution, at, e at least, to help those people, those older first-time buyers now, 
buy a home. What do you think of it as an idea? Well, I think that if you look at the evidence in the UK of a similar type policy, it hasn't worked in the sense of actually helping people access homes. What it has done, and this is where Verona's right to raise the issue, in the context of a shortage of supply, if you're giving more credit, more ability of people to borrow, it simply pushes up prices. And this is the problem. Yeah. And that's why the central bank, for example, hasn't extended the, 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 the mortgage lending rules, because in the absence of, of supply, more demand coming in yeah. from people to buy just pushes up prices. Yeah, this scheme could be welcome if we weren't um, in a place where we're seeing house prices rise by over 12% in a year. But, but in this space where supply is at such a scarcity, mm. is it the wisest move? Like the central bank itself said today that it has the potential to increase pricing pressures. Why are we doing I think, this? I, I think when you look at the, the other layers of security that the central bank have in place in relation to linking uh, the ability to borrow based on your income, uh, and the level of deposit that you have to have in place, it's, it's, it's effectively a small measure that will assist those who would not get a mortgage it, in their local area. But won't area. it mean the prices will go up because no, the I government is, I, I is giving I, that extra 20% for new builds? I don't, I don't accept that because I think the reality is that prices are at a premium at the moment because of the competition that's already there. So I don't think that this measure... Uh, will have any inflationary pressure because the market is at such a point of saturation at the moment because of the shortage of supply. So, so it will, it, it's, it's, it's a relatively small measure that will assist a number of people in being able to afford a home who, who are completely out of the market because, okay. of, because of how high it is uh, what, at the moment. What about when the central bank says it has the potential to increase pricing pressures? Yeah, I think if it was taken without the other protections that are there, which is the income limits, um, and you didn't, have, uh, you didn't have any other supports there or any other measures, it, it, it could have. And I think that was the reference that Rory made in the UK. But I think in the main... Uh, the central bank have come down in favour of it because they believe that it won't in the long run have that they effect. It did take a while to, co to come to that decision, so a lot to weigh up there. Verona, what do you think of that idea around shared equity where the state would help people buy a house? Well, I think it is a welcome measure for people who are under pressure from the high rents that they're paying because, again, of the lack of supply. And I think no matter how we look at supply, it comes back to basics. And the basic issue is planning. It's It's... That's where it starts and that is where it finishes. We are not seeing houses being built because of the viability issue. Houses that are, uh, you know, out densities of 35 dwellings per acre, you are getting houses that are terraced or apartments. People do not want to buy them. Developers won't build them. The reality is that unless we change our planning policy, we will not see a housing market increase, a housing supply increase okay. outside of Dublin. Um, Rory, I just want uh, just another point that, that was brought up today and this was and the central bank didn't change their mind on it. This is the lending rules. Three and a half times your salary is the max that you can get and that was a framework. It's something that was brought in um, to avoid a repeat of the 2008 crash. But people would say, you know, three and a half times your salary, if you're trying to buy in Dublin where the average house price is 400,000 euro, like you've saved your 40k deposit, you still need to be earning 100,000 euro to get a home. Yeah, it's extremely difficult, you know, and, and again, you know, people are, you know, paying up to two grand a month in rent and more, you know, and, and then not being able to get a mortgage. Like, I think there are issues that could be looked at in terms of people's rent and that that they're paying and how that could be included. But there are, again, the problem is, and the central bank said this very clearly, the issue is the lack of supply. And there is an issue here when we look at, for example, we say, you know, Timmy said there's not enough houses in this country. There's 180,000 vacant homes. There's 
there's a massive amount of derelict property, there is a real issue there that the policy is orientated around what large developers and investment funds want to build, which is new developments, rather than looking at the massive amount of vacant homes that are exist. And why aren't they been brought into use? And there's, a, as I said, a potentially 180,000. There is a supply that's sitting there that really we should be addressing. Okay. That, that is something gets discussed every week uh, or every month, I should say, at council meetings. But I think the reality is we have such arduous regulation now. It's unaffordable to actually do up those houses. Most people can actually buy a home now cheaper than they can renovate because okay. of the cost of building. We're going to have to leave it there, I'm afraid. My thanks to Rory Hearn, Timmy and Verona will be joining me after the break when we'll be discussing NEFIT's new guidelines and what European regulators are saying about vaccines for children. Stay with us. Welcome back. Now, we told you earlier about NEFIT's latest recommendations, and it comes on the same day that European regulators approved vaccines for 5 to 11-year-olds. Well, Zara King spoke to HSE Chief Executive Paul Reid and asked him about just that. Paul Reid, the EMA has approved vaccines for 5 to 11-year-olds today. Um, obviously, this decision will need to go to NIAC over the next couple of days, but once it's made, how quickly can the HSE roll this out? First of all, we would welcome the EMA decision in relation to 5 to 11-year-olds uh, vaccines. Uh, what happens now is we wait from the National Immunisation Advisory Committee recommendation in relation to, uh, for us to proceed with that. Uh, there is an issue all across Europe in terms of the delivery schedule of those vaccines and it is likely that it will be towards the end of December. Uh, what we are doing in the meantime is putting together an operating plan uh, about how we would bring through uh, young children uh, with parents' consents uh, for the vaccination, uh, what channels they would go through, vaccination centres, GPs, pharmacies. Uh, and also we will be engaging with uh, parents uh, through focus groups to get parents feedback about what's important for them in terms of information and giving them confidence uh, to uh, support uh, young children coming through for vaccination. Do you know what um, kind of numbers will be eligible in that 5 to 11 age bracket? It's, it's approximately about 450,000 uh, eligible in that age bracket to 5 to 11 years of age. So it would be a number that we can mobilise around very quickly uh, once that decision is made and we would be planning to mobilise around it uh, very quickly. So we'll await the decision, the recommendation from NIAC, uh, we'll await the delivery schedule uh, from the suppliers uh, and we'll, but in the meantime we'll be putting together the operating plan and mobilisation plan and as I say engaging with parents to get their understanding of what's important for them because ultimately we want to see a reasonably high uptake uh, in the vaccine for younger children as well. Separately, that NEFT advice that went to government today in relation to uh, face masks being worn by children in a classroom setting, I appreciate it's not a direct uh, policy for the HSE, but do you think it'll make a difference in terms of preventing children being hospitalised? Well, ultimately, any decision around wearing a face mask for young children is a decision for government uh, based on any advice they get from NEFIT. Uh, what I would say from a health service perspective, we are seeing significant impacts of respiratory uh, virus illness uh, young children. So our children's hospitals um, through October and November have seen about a 70% increase in presentations for emergency care and primarily with respiratory virus illness. So you know anything that can protect or reduce that impact of respiratory illness and those presentations in our hospitals would be a good thing for the health system overall. 
That's Paul Reid speaking to Zara King earlier. Well, Timmy Dooley and Verona Murphy are still here with me. And I'm joined by Christine Losher, Professor of Immunology at DCU. You're very welcome along to the programme, Christine. And I want to start first with those NEFIT recommendations that are emerging tonight. Masks for those aged nine years and over and third-class primary school children up. That's in all the settings that adults would, 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 would use them. So that would be retail, that would be going indoors, public transport and all of that. Also a ban on the likes of nativity plays, community indoor gatherings, that would be play dates, indoor birthday parties. Um, so there's changes happening. They're all affecting younger people. Um, I want to ask you first on that masks decision. Will this have an impact on transmission when we see a class load of nine year old, nine year, years old up now wearing them, will it stop the virus transmitting? So I think lots of children this age are wearing masks already in other indoor settings and actually not in schools. So I think one of the issues that we've spoken about where we talk about masks for children was masks for very young children. And there is a big difference between a four or five year old and a nine and a 10 year old. So I do think that it will potentially make a difference. I don't know that it's going to really impact in the way that we need it to impact because the numbers are so high at the moment. There is no doubt that mask wearing is a very good tool in terms of decreasing transmission. So in this age group, it will help. But I don't know if it's going to be the significant step change that we need to impact on case and numbers. And why not? I don't think children wear masks as correctly as adults do. So if we think about mask wearing. Masks are very good de-risking tools in terms of transmission if they're worn correctly. And we've all seen examples in adults where they're not being worn correctly. And I think it's even more difficult for children. They tend to become very uncomfortable and not to be able to fidget. And one of the things we've told children for the last year and a half is not to touch their face. And that's what hand sanitising is all about, is about keeping clean hands. And I think that there is a risk that it will encourage them more to touch their face way more than they have been and potentially it'll be counterproductive. So I, I would kind of, you know, I, I hope that it will make a, a difference. I don't think it's going to make a significant difference. I think if we're making significant difference, it has to be around vaccination for these age groups. Yeah, so you, this is the suggestion and the recommendation from NEFIT tonight. Do you think the government should, should approve it and take up on it? I think that, you know, I'd like to see that there's, you know, guidance and advice. I think that's always been the way to go. If there's advice to parents that if you would, you know, if you think your child can wear a mask in school and you'd like your child to wear a mask, then that's what the advice should be. It does decrease transmission in the general population. I don't know, it certainly wouldn't be in favour of mandating masks in children that age, um, but I do think that children are not wearing them in school because the advice is not about school. But I see those children of that age and my own, my own child of that age would wear them in other indoor settings. So I think it's about guiding parents about that there's a useful tool there, they can wear them in school, and if they wish to wear them, that they can, and it becomes the norm in school rather than the odd person out in the class. Okay, the issue of mask wearing, Timmy, um, has been brought up for a long time and I think it was something being considered. It was, it, was, it was on the table there for a while and then the decision was made that actually it prevented sort of interaction between children in the classroom with their teacher and, and at, at that critical childhood stage. So do you think the government are going to sort of set aside that view and say, we need to do this now. Yeah, no, there's no doubt uh, children with certain learning difficulties um, and with certain conditions do find it um, a, a difficulty because quite frankly, they depend a lot on the facial expression of others that they're, 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 they're dealing with. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. But look, the reality is that, that Neffet and the people, the public health doctors, have at this stage felt that it, it, is, it is the appropriate recommendation. I, I, I don't know what government will do. Government have taken on board most of the recommendations that have come from Neffet. But I think no different to a lot of what's happening, the general recommendations without the full force of law are really being implemented. I see in, in, in other sectors uh, when Neffet indicated a necessity for people to um, limit uh, their, their socialisation. That's happening. I talk to restaurateurs on a daily basis who are saying they've had a massive amount of cancellation uh, in, in recent weeks because people are now a, a lot more yeah. conscious and careful and they're making decisions themselves. So I think, uh, as, as, as you've al al already said, if it's out there as a general recommendation, uh, I think many parents and a lot of children will, 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 will follow suit if they believe that it's going to contribute in some way. It's not going to solve the problem. It's not going to make the virus go away, but it's just another, uh, another tool. Another tool. Uh, another uh, tool along the, with many other things many and, others, and the likes of ventilation still coming yeah. up as an issue in the classroom. Um, but, but generally speaking, I mean, this Neffet's recommendations tonight, it's not just around mask wearing, it's about cutting down on all those mm. um, indoor gatherings that, that are likely to increase over the next couple of weeks, Verona. Yeah, I've had conversations with people who've heard the recommendations, uh, both teachers and parents, who are really very annoyed. Uh, they feel, why now? I mean, we have already an exponential explosion of cases within the primary school section uh, sector. We have school classrooms with windows and doors open. Children are wearing coats. Uh, Neffet haven't seen fit to endorse the fact that we should be providing high efficiency particular filters uh, for the school so that that might help and it should have helped in September. It should have been there in September. Antigen testing, it's taken a month for the recommendation to come through and we're not there yet. Last Monday, we put all children back at 100% capacity on the school bus. It just seems like it's a step forward and 10 steps back and parents and teachers are pretty annoyed yeah. about this. And I think Christine is absolutely right. The fact that it's from nine-year-olds or third class upwards may make it somewhat easier for teachers in that it can be very difficult to spend your day telling a child to put the mask back on, you know, and I don't think it'll be mandated. OK, I, I just want to touch on, on this news that's emerging tonight from South Africa about this new strain that's uh, said to be more transmissible, possibly, than Delta. What are you hearing about it? Because um, it has led to Britain making that decision to cancel all travel between um, Britain and six African countries as a result. It's at the moment called B11529. It's still to be given um, its Greek alphabet name, or maybe it's new or 
something like that we're hearing. What, what are you hearing about it? Yeah, it's, it's soon to be christened new um, to bring us into a new year, hopefully not. Um, I think that from, from what I'm reading, the, the unknown piece about this variant at the moment is the significant number of mutations that it has. So if you look at the spike protein, which our vaccines are, are against, if you like, it's that part of the virus that we're targeting. Um, Delta and Alpha might have two or three, and this, this will have like 30 variants just in the spike protein. So it would lead you to believe that it potentially might be evasive to vaccines that we have in circulation at the moment. And one of the mutations it does have, we do know already that it does make it more transmissible because it has a similar um, variant to the alpha strain, which was more transmissible than the original. So we, we don't know a huge amount at the moment. And that's why it's, it's a variant of interest and may very quickly become a variant of concern. I know the WHO are meeting about this very soon. Um, I think the things to remember at the moment is, is that there are very small case numbers in a small number of countries mm. in three at the moment um, that are linked by travel. Um, it seems that this variant has arisen potentially in a single individual who had a chronic infection because it's, there's too many um, mutations for it to have evolved um, over time. Um, so I think there's a lot of wait and see here. Um, we don't know that it's way more transmissible. We don't know that it's going to be vaccine evasive, but there are suggestions that that might be the case. And that is the concern at the moment. It does make you wonder though, doesn't it? When, because the WHO have said about, you know, vaccines and increasing them. So giving them to the likes of five to 11 year olds, they've said it's less urgent to vaccinate younger uh, children than older people, those with chronic health conditions and health workers. When you look at mutations like this happening, um, in countries like South Africa and other African countries where maybe the vaccination rate is, is low and there is, is a shortage of vaccine supply, you have to ra raise the question, do our children need to be vaccinated now when mutations are occurring at the other side of the world? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, a, that's the ethical question. Um, and I think it's the obvious one in the long term, because unless and until uh, the wider part of the world is vaccinated, uh, we'll still be under threat uh, of a mutant or a variant that will has the potential to, to, to arrive on, on our shores. Uh, and regardless of how we're vaccinated, uh, it, it, it may not be enough. So that challenge is going on at, at, at a global level. And I think the pharmaceutical companies have a big role to play in that in relation to how they manage their patents and where the product can be produced and in what format. Uh, I, I think, you know, the sooner that that's brought to a head, that needs to happen in parallel. But it's difficult to say to somebody here who has maybe lost a child at 15 or 16 or, or younger through COVID, it's very hard to say to society, well, let's not vaccinate because we should be concentrating on the, on the, on, on the global picture. Yeah, um, just on the, the vaccine programme, we heard Paul Reid talk about it there, that we're likely to get supply in or distribution to start before Christmas, but then it'll be January um, when, when the rollout begins here. Do you think it's something that parents are going to welcome, Verona? Well, I mean, if they want it, yes, absolutely. But it will be a choice. But I think we need to, like, there, as Christine said, this is a new mutation. We have never, at least I have always said, you know, that we may get through the whole of the Greek alphabet by the time we see the end of this virus. And what we don't have here in this country is a long-term plan to live with COVID. And 
if all our children don't take up the vaccine at the age of 5 to 11, it is still very important that we ventilate our schools, that the setting, this is airborne, so why not prevent or try to contain it the best way we can? The virus is going to stop us from being very sick. It is not going to stop us getting the virus. So therefore, we need to have the measures in place, antigen testing. And the, all of those things. All of those yeah. things. And I mean, but we need to resource our ICU capacity. We cannot have lockdown as a default position. We cannot say that every time we overwhelm our ICU, we have to lock down. We have got one day's lockdown would resource all of what I'm speaking about. OK, I just want to talk specifically about this vaccine um, for that younger age group that is being has been approved um, by European regulators. And we see it's in it's already in America, it's in Canada. I think Austria, Austria are rolling it out um, already, not waiting for Europe to give it the go ahead. Um, in terms of, like, has the science community evolved on this one? Because there seemed to be sort of initially that this mightn't be necessary, that children had low virus load, weren't really spreading this virus so much and tossing up, you know, the benefits and the risks involved and not necessarily coming down on the side that this was a necessary thing. Have they shifted on that now? I think there's a couple of... So, yes, potentially it has has been a shift and that's for a number of reasons. Firstly, when we, when we talked about vaccination, we honestly didn't think you'd have to vaccinate the children. And the reason for that was, was that when the vaccine was developed, it was developed against the original strain of, of Wuhan virus. And we didn't realise that there was going to be a new mutant so quickly that would be vaccine evasive. So essentially, we thought by vaccinating adults, you would have enough population immunity in order to make sure that we, we would kind of, the virus would eventually die out. So that changed with Alpha. It then subsequently changed with Delta. So now we're in a situation where we have a highly transmissible variant, which is somewhat vaccine evasive. Our vaccines are not as strong as they were supposed to be. And now it's a lot further for us to get population immunity. And that means we need to vaccinate more people. The other thing that's happened is, is that we're realising over time that living with the after effects of COVID in both adults and children can be quite difficult. And the incidence of long COVID is much higher than we would have ever envisaged. And actually, we never envisaged that a virus like a respiratory virus would actually give such long lasting um, issues. So those are considerations now when we look at children is the potential long term effects on their health. And they weren't things that we were considering at the start. So the shift has been because of Delta and the shift has been because we know more about the virus, not necessarily the science behind the vaccines. OK, well, we'll be hearing an awful lot more about this vaccine that's been approved um, in Europe, the smaller dose of the Pfizer vaccine. Um, but for now, we'll have to leave it there. My thanks to Timmy Dooley, to Verona Murphy and Christine Losher. Lots more after the break. We'll take a look at some of the biggest stories of the week. Stay with us. Welcome back. Now, let's take a look back at a very busy week of news. I'm joined by former government minister Shane Ross, who's currently writing a biography of Mary Lou Macdonald at the moment, Aoife Moore, the political correspondent at the Irish Examiner, and Dr Umar Al-Khadri, former uh, founder and chairperson of the Irish Muslim Peace and Integration Council. You're all very welcome along um, to the programme tonight. I want to start with um, the man at the moment, 
uh, the guy in the Stetson who's just creating a huge sale, uh, sellout of tickets. Five nights uh, we have for Garth Brooks at Crow Park. Uh, let's take a little look at the reaction to some people who managed to get their hands on those tickets today. Absolutely thrilled to be getting the Garth tickets, um, especially after 2014 and the heartache of that and the heartbreak was was devastating. Oh, beyond thrill. I can't believe it. Well, on September, I've gotten my two tickets for Friday night. Back in 2014, I queued up for three days um, all overnights outside Ticketmaster, I think it was at the time, to see Garth Brooks. And then, obviously, the devastation when it was cancelled. We were all just absolutely raging over it. I've been dreaming about this since 2014 when I had a ticket for four of the five shows that got sadly cancelled. But this time we'll make it. These are the Uber fans that are out there. Are you one of them, Shane Ross? I don't really get it, but I'm delighted for them that, that, that they're going to get so much pleasure out of it. I feel a bit of sympathy for the residents. I heard them on the radio this, this yeah. morning, and they're getting a pretty tough time. Uh, and so, you know, I think that, that may, be, may be a bit of an issue when, when the time comes. But at the moment, it's great to see somebody going to, anticipating enjoying themselves in this city because things are so grim. Yeah, so you wouldn't have been one of those people who was in the queue. I think like, someone's saying the queue started at 8 a.m., the online queue, but actually others were saying we were there at 6 in the morning, 6.30, yeah, to join the pre-queue to the queue. Yeah. But a phenomenal number of tickets being sold. I think there half the country saying, oh, a total sellout, I'd love to go, and the other half scratching their heads going, who's buying these tickets? Yeah. Yeah. But uh, you were one of the people who, who's trying to get yeah. a hold of tickets, Aoife. I'd just like to save my reputation. It wasn't for me. I was actually planning really? on getting them for a Christmas present. When I went on this evening, it appeared on the website that there was tickets. But once you clicked on to try and buy them, it was totally impossible. So I don't know if the website's not working or all the tickets are gone. But I don't think my I'm going to be very popular at home <laughs> this Christmas. I wasn't able to get them. But yeah, well, you were coming to it a bit late in the day when you see people and like the likes of, of those fans there that were online and on board very early on. It is like one of these things. It's like an Irish phenomenon. I don't get it, but we absolutely love people like Garth Brooks. Like I wasn't here for the last debacle of, you know, when it got cancelled and we were talking about getting President Obama <laughs> involved at one point. Yeah. But I, I'm delighted for him. But like Sean, uh, Shane said, I'm a bit worried about the residents. I think five nights being penned under your house, listening to if tomorrow never comes is a bit much. <laughs> They're probably wondering when tomorrow will indeed yeah. come. Um, Umar, you'd be very familiar with Croke Park. That's where you've held Eid for the last uh, the last couple of years. It's been a very popular venue. Um, so you could see why Garth Brooks would want to set up shop there for five nights. Uh, totally right, and I must say that I'm not really a big fan of country music myself. Um, <laughs> but I do find has it. To say this. It's <laughs> I find it really fascinating. Um, as you said, we did two events uh, the last two years. We performed our Eid prayers there, and the team at Croke Park are wonderful. They are very wor welcoming, very warm, uh, friendly. And uh, but their concern is the noise. And even at our two events that took place at 9 a.m. in the morning, we were continuously monitoring the decibel levels of the PA system mm -hmm. to make sure that it doesn't mm -hmm. go beyond that. So I do understand the concerns of the neighbours regarding the noise, but it just appears that Gart is stronger than me and he has <laughs> friends in high places uh -huh. because he's been able to get, uh, you know, five nights uh, this time. Uh, so to all the people that didn't get a ticket and are really into this, I would say if tomorrow never comes, you'll oh. never know about it anyway. Okay, we have to stop this, put a ban on it. We have more topics to discuss. It'll be brought into every single conversation, every Garth Brooks song. Um, because I want to move on and it was brought up today in the Dáil by Piers Doherty saying, look, you'd be easier to get your hands 
exams um, on a Garth Brooks ticket than you would get a PCR test these mm. days. Mm. Um, there's so much pressure on our system around these spiralling uh, COVID case numbers and people trying to get tested and trying to, to do mm. the right thing. What do you think of the way it's all playing out, Shane Ross? I'm very close to despair at this stage. I think it is a really serious situation. I, li I listened to Leo this morning, and I was very concerned when I heard him say that the situation was not under control. I thought that was an extraordinary thing for the Tornister to be saying, that it was actually now out of control and that the virus was something which they couldn't control. And I thought that was, was, was really difficult. And then he went on to say, to give us some platitudes like keep the faith, but not promising too many measures or not promising too many solutions. And I do get the impression that the government now is flying blind into this particular, into this, into the, this fourth wave. We've had now four waves. And each time we've been asked to hold on, just get over this wave and it'll be all right. And each time it's got worse. And we've now got a situation, you know all the statistics, there's no point in me repeating them, but I mean, the ICU is serious, the hospitals are serious, yeah. PCAR is really, really bad. And yet we, we, we get a government saying, being fairly complacent and saying, let's see how it plays out. That's not good enough. If you were in government, what would you do then? Well, I think the important thing, the important thing here, first of all, I wouldn't go on the radio and start making announcements, uh, which I can't keep. I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't be promising. I'd have one single message. I wouldn't have opened the nightclubs. I thought that was absolutely crazy. At the same time, as they were opening the nightclubs on the 22nd of October, the message was going out from the CMO and from the government and others, keep your distance, abide by this, you know, you do actually restrict yourself personally more. They're but open, but don't go. But yeah, exactly. It, it is just so confusing. And I think what's happening out there at the moment now is that people are losing confidence in the government's ability to sort this problem out for us. Would you agree with that, Aoife, that, that sense of uncertainty, actually the government are themselves saying this is very uncertain, but right now what people want is certainty. They want that leadership um, mm -hmm. and they want to feel like we are in, we, we will be in a safe place and we will be able to have a relatively safe Christmas, that this situation is under control. I think the public as well as the government are so burned from last year, like the meaningful Christmas. We all know what happened last year. We were allowed out and we all went buck mad and the cases went skyrocketing in January. That was before we had vaccines and everything else. I think you can tell that ministers are also afraid of this now. You know, I think even with the public health officials, you know, we had Dr. Ronan Glenn a couple of days ago saying we never said schools were safe when that was all we heard for months and months. That panics people because it makes the, pe the public think, who are we supposed to be listening to? What are we supposed to be doing? I think the issues with PCR testing could have been seen months ago. If we had to get a handle on antigen testing and proper communication around antigen testing, we wouldn't probably have the surge of people looking for PCR tests. Now, I think we were very far behind in that. I've said this before, I feel like this government is very reactive rather than proactive. And I think the public are really concerned now. And I think this notion of saying it's personal responsibility, of course it's personal responsibility, but also the government needs to have a plan. And it's become very clear now when we're talking about putting masks on, you know, younger children and cancelling nativities and all this. If, but then we were told schools were safe for months and months and months. It's all very contradictory. And I can see why people are starting, like Shane, are starting to despair because it doesn't really seem like there is a plan heading under the teeth of Christmas.
Mm. Yeah, um, I, the messaging is something that comes up time and time again. Um, just on this decision, because it's a very firm decision made by European regulators about bringing in the vaccine for, um, for children aged 5 to 11, is this something that you think will be broadly welcomed? Because up until now, while people, we've been very compliant on the vaccine uptake for the adult population, um, bringing younger children into the mix with the vaccine as well, will be an, another challenge for government, won't it? Uh, that certainly will be, uh, but I think that people, uh, the majority of those that have already, I mean, we have one of the highest levels of social, comp we had uh, so social compliance. Uh, also, we have, uh, we have currently one of the highest level of vaccinations in Europe. So I do think that people will be uh, proactive, will be, uh, you know, accepting that. But there is a bigger picture. I think that um, if it takes a lockdown to save lives, uh, I, I, you know, understand that we'll have to do that. But we should not be in this position, really. After nearly two years in the pandemic, um, I think uh, the public has been really very great in the past two years, but it's on the government now because the government hasn't really invested in healthcare, uh, invested in you know, ensuring that we do have enough capacity in the hospitals. So that's a failure, an ideological and physical decision that the government has taken. And I think that's something that really needs to be highlighted. Um, and at, this, at the public, it's not their, you know, uh, concern. It's, it's the concern, but I mean, it's not their responsibility alone. It's also the government's, and the government really have to admit their mistakes and has to invest in healthcare, which really is important because we have to live with, okay. with this virus and that, now. And that brings me on to another mm. thing that was brought up today, and this is around giving the day back for the healthcare workers and all of us for all the good that we've done during the pandemic. Um, Leah Radker talking about this double bank holiday around St. Patrick's mm. Day being considered. Um, I take it a welcome move generally, but again, it will point to people in uh, health workers saying, look, we don't really, don't these pandemic bonuses and mm. everything and these public holidays, they're no good if we've got this health system suffering like it is. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. The I, I, I was flabbergasted when I heard him say that today. And then he, he didn't say just one bank holiday. He said two bank holidays. And this is, it's pure politics. It's just pure. Well, one, go, I think we've got Paddy's Day and then the day yeah, after. That's right. Yeah, so okay. okay. But, but there's going to be two bank holidays in a row. Sorry. Yeah, Paddy's Day and the day after. Exactly. But what we're, what we're, what we're seeing here is we're seeing politicians absolutely bankrupt of ideas of what to do about COVID, having bet the bank on, on the vac vaccines and that not having worked, and now coming out with, having to come out with some good news. And then they say, right, we'll, we'll have a bank holiday. And that was just typical politician wanting to give some, some good news out there when it was absolutely really irrelevant. You'd have done the same thing. No, certainly not. Oh, Under been... no circumstances. Oh, come on. No, I wouldn't have given, given anything. I would, do some, I would have you done You love a good news story. You love the a good... and the photos and all of you that. You love a good story. <laughs> I love a good news story, particularly if it's about me. But I don't like playing with people's lives in this sort of situation. It's too serious. OK. Uh, do you think people would welcome this? I mean, it's been touted as a day of, of remembrance and, and, mm -hmm. and giving thanks, I suppose, for what we've done, and that applies to all frontline workers and all of us. I absolutely agree. I really think there should be some sort of day of remembrance. I think people have given a lot, not just the thousands of people who have died north and south. I think healthcare workers, 
and everyone deserves everyone deserves a day. But I also think calling it a bank holiday for the frontline workers is a bit insulting because we know that nurses and doctors don't get bank holidays. People who work in Tesco's don't get bank holidays. These frontline workers that we're talking about, call it what it is. Just say what it is. It's a day for everyone who made a sacrifice. But also this notion that we're trying to give back to frontline workers. If it was really about healthcare workers, all they really want is better work and paying conditions. And I, if you went out and asked a nurse tomorrow who worked in a COVID award, do you want an extra bank holiday? I don't think it would make that much difference yeah. to them. Um, we had tragedy again um, yesterday on this news about the English, uh, the, the, the dinghy capsizing on the English Channel. 27 people on board um, and others I, I think are still missing. And these were refugees trying to cross the English Channel um, from France to, to get into Britain. Uh, what do you make of this? And, and I suppose the political reaction to it as well, Umar? Well, 27 people, among which children and women, have been uh, have died trying to cross the English Channel. It's a human tragedy at highest level, and I think that Boris Johnson and Priti Patel have serious questions to answer because they try to make it illegal uh, for uh, organisations and uh, individuals to save those that are in distress on sea. Um, I think that we really have to understand that be these people are not illegal. Uh, illegal immigrants. These people are uh, trying to do something legally, which is crossing the English Channel, which is legal under international law. They are legal asylum seekers. They have the, okay. the right to apply for, uh, for asylum right. seeking. Okay, there we have to leave it. My thanks to our panel. That's it from us. Our programme is available as a podcast. Our next news is on Ireland AM tomorrow morning from all the team here. Good night. Take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.